I guess the short of it is, is the sanitary sewers in Toronto are at maximum capacity. So from the volume standpoint, there's not a lot of uh, space. Welcome to It's Soil Not Dirt, an interview-based podcast in all aspects of geotechnical engineering and sponsored by PRI Engineering, experts of soil mechanics. We aim to come in under 20 minutes while diving deep into one question around a single topic. It's particle-sized and meaningful. I'm Janet, your host, and today we're speaking with Arashius Danny, the Director of Engineering, and Eric Thurston, Program Manager for Materials Testing and Inspections from PR Engineering. And today's guest is Mike Francis, Project Manager and PGO at GEMS. This is a continuation of a previous podcast episode on hydrogeology. In the first part of this, and I highly recommend that you listen to that part first, and then listen to this part. We cover the basics of hydrogeology, and Mike does a really great job explaining those, and I won't rehash that here. In this episode, we get into a bit more of, I would say, the meat of the implications of what happens if you ignore hydrogeology, and Mike covers a few case studies for us locally here in Toronto. At the end of this episode, we get a little treat from Mike, and he talks about what really inspires him to work in hydrogeology and why this is a passion for him. So take a listen and we're just going to start right in the middle of things. On to Eric. Yeah, so why don't we, why don't we spend some time on this? So you're downtown, you got a great big hole in the ground. We, we, we've got our, our permit to take water in our hand. We've got our water quality assessments. Where, what, what are our discharge options? Yeah. So in a city, I mean, your discharge options are even a little bit more uh, limited because then you're looking at basically discharging it to the sewer system or you're looking at at hauling it off site. If you don't know what your water quality is, um, you haven't thoroughly assessed it or it's in exceedance of, uh, of, of what is allowable to go to the sewer, then you're looking at hauling it off site. That's going to be very costly for um, contractors to be hauling all of that water off-site and disposing it off-site at a ministry-approved facility. Uh, so the uh, better option would be to discharge it to the city's or municipality's sewer systems, which would be the storm sewer or the uh, sanitary sewers. Right, and so they, each of those systems has its own set of rules regarding discharge water. Yeah, that's right. So they have some some different rules and and criteria that needs to be uh, met in order to discharge. So your your water from your construction site that you're collecting and pulling out from the soil needs to be able to meet that criteria to be able to discharge to there. Um, exceedances of that criteria could result in, you know, losing your permit to be able to discharge to that sewer. <laughs> Uh, which would be, you know, a, a huge issue. The the word is uh, catastrophic. <laughs> yeah, that would be uh, <laughs> it. Would be uh, catastrophic to have your you know discharge agreement um, suspended. The situation in Toronto uh, specifically that needs to be looked at pretty closely because I think there's also volume requirements too. Yeah, I mean, def- yeah, there's definitely both and. I guess the short of it is, is the sanitary sewers in Toronto are at maximum capacity. So from the volume standpoint, there's not a lot of uh, space for that water to be going. The sewers were designed for a much 
older and a much smaller Toronto, uh, which is, you know, as we all know, has grown exponentially over the last uh, you know, 10, 15 years. And the sewer systems and municipal infrastructure is, you know, on huge catch up trying to accommodate just the flows that the people are putting in, let alone the, the flows that the construction industry is trying to put into the sanitary or storm sewers uh, also. Yes, because I'm imagining that for a lot of these condo projects, you would be talking about really sizable excavations, like what, eight, nine, ten stories deep? Yeah, so some of them are, are quite quite large. There's uh, certain parking ratios that need to be met uh, depending on what wards you are in within the city, and um, that usually means some sort of underground parking structure. and. For anybody who's tried to dig a large hole at the beach before, um, you know, building some sandcastles with your kids, it's uh, or even as a kid, you know, you're digging that hole and it keeps filling up with water and you keep trying to scoop the water out and it just keeps filling up and you keep trying to dig do- deeper and more water keeps coming in. Well, you know, that's the situation when you're looking at five, six levels of underground parking on the waterfront in Toronto is that's a lot of water that needs to get diverted into a sewer system. Um, and as I said, like the sanitary sewers are pretty much full and Toronto is working diligently on trying to ensure that more of this, you know, development water uh, from dewatering isn't being diverted into the sanitary sewers. Also, it doesn't really make sense to have the taxpayers, you know, paying for that treatment of that water before it leaves the the water treatment facilities. So they're kind of trying to steer it towards the storm sewer. Um, But circling back to what you said about the quality, there's pretty much almost no groundwater that's naturally occurring in the Toronto area that meets the storm sewer without some form of, of treatment. Actually, that's a, something I wanted to ask was if, if you do have a moderately impacted uh, groundwater, are there any on-site treatments that can be completed in order to sort of clean it up or purify it a little bit prior to discharge or is the water the water? No, uh, there's definitely some treatment options that need to get evaluated uh, when you're looking at trying to develop your sites. When you develop in a more rural environment and you're assessing your property and doing your environmental due diligence, you may have uh, become aware that there is some potential for impacts or contamination. And in a rural setting, that developer may decide, hey, I'll just pass on this piece of land or maybe I'll change my site plan and develop on a different portion of the land or um, maybe change the whole development strategy altogether. In the city, you know, that free and available land is a lot more scarce. So you get into that situation with whatever the water quality is that you're encountering on your site you need to do that financial assessment and decide what you know what you're going to do with it are you going to haul it off site at a very expensive fee or are you going to try and treat that water and send it to the storm sewer and there are definitely some some treatment options out there depending on how contaminated or impacted that water is on your site um, 
but you're seeing more sites around Toronto that are employing, you know, a full-on short-term treatment system, not necessarily your standard sediment tank to just remove TSS and maybe some suspended metals that might be in the water. You're looking at, you know, activated carbon vessels and, um, you know, different treatment vessels as part of your system to remove different parts of contamination. Toronto's a really old city and it's been around for a long time, so it's, you could pick almost any piece of available property and within a 200 meter radius of that site, there's a really good chance there was probably a dry cleaner or a gas station or, you know, one of those higher environmentally concerned um, sites proximal to your site. So we've talked about a lot of really complex issues here. And I think some of the, like, and it just sounds like Toronto is incredibly complex when you're dealing with any sort of like groundwater issues and with construction. So I think what would be helpful for everyone here is if you could just talk um, about one of the most um, common issues, maybe give an example maybe without any names or any companies or specifics mentioned, but what's our, our top issue here in Toronto? And like maybe if you can give like um, an example of when somebody handled it really well and then when they handled it not so well. Okay, yeah, so there's the issues that could arise for, uh, you know, a development in Toronto are going to depend a little bit on maybe a little bit where you're located within the city. And if you're located a bit north of the city, some of your bigger concerns or issues with dewatering or construction dewatering would be the impact on other groundwater users. There's still lots of areas north of Toronto where people are on their own well, and obviously, you know, water is vital to life. So if a construction dewatering project was pulling down the groundwater in the area, so much so that, you know, immediate residents didn't have water to drink, then, you know, that would be a, a, a catastrophic issue for, uh, you know, the homeowner as well as the, the, the constructor. Now, Mike, for those on the, uh, listening who aren't as familiar with groundwater, essentially a large enough excavation providing a large enough volume of dewatering can essentially pull the water table lower, deeper into the earth so that people who had productive wells, wells which were providing their house with groundwater, drinking water, potable water, could that, that, that there's a potential that construction activities could cause them to essentially run dry. It might not dry up permanently, but for the duration of the construction project and maybe for a period of time afterwards, they could be out of water entirely or just have a much more limited supply of water. And that would, you know, come from very large footprint excavations or potentially smaller footprint, but a lot deeper where you're pulling down that local groundwater, um, you know, away from or, or below the depths that some of these wells are installed at. Cool. So, yeah, we look at uh, that, I mean, from a t- technical perspective, is the, the radius of influence. So when we do our groundwater assessments, we look at that size of excavation and then forecast 
how far that radius of influence would extend outwards and then cross-reference that with you know registered wells that are in that area and this type of calculation or assessment is probably a pretty big piece of the uh, permit to take water yeah absolutely it's a major factor of the permit to take water and it within the city i mean you're not in a situation where people are using groundwater to supply their house with drinking water anymore because everybody's serviced with municipal water um, but there are still risks evolved uh, in the city and some of those risks might be pulling a contaminant plume towards your excavation so your site might not be contaminated to begin with but running a three or four year construction program with five levels of underground um, could be a lot of groundwater pumping that could pull contamination that's off-site onto your site now making your site contaminated and I've definitely submitted permit to take water applications where that is something that's been a very huge risk and maybe that risk wasn't evaluated as well as it could have been beforehand, um, which has caused them to not receive their permit to take water at all. So for that particular client, construction hasn't been able to move forward for, you know, it could be a year and a half now because that permit to take water issue hasn't been able to be resolved. And this would be a extremely difficult problem to solve because the the, the problem, the, the uh, thing you need to address is not on your site. And so in order to develop or uh, start this construction excavation, you, you start with clean water and then over the course of a year or two or three, you could end up bringing that plume into your excavation. And so that's, yeah. uh, that is... I don't even know how I begin to untangle that. There's all sorts of different risks that come up with that. And it's the, you know, as we talked about before, the, the discharging of that water. Now that water might not meet the receiving sewer criteria anymore. So you can't discharge it. Coming up with a new cost of having to haul that off site that wasn't forecasted for um, could be a huge issue. Or it could be a huge issue for whoever's maintaining ownership of that building long term. Right? Maybe that doesn't get identified during construction. Now you have a condo, the condo gets turned over to the condo board, and now they need to address the situation that there might be contaminated groundwater coming into their foundation weeping tile drainage system. Right, and you could also have it, and again, this is sort of speculation on my part, but is there potential that groundwater that is traveling through some of these plumes, these things can travel. So you could end up with groundwater carrying contaminants of some variety and depositing them in the soil that is uh, in proximity to the building. Yeah, is that absolutely. right? Leaving some residuals behind and creating problems for sure. And, and, you know, some of that's going to feed into the excess soils aspect of it too, right? Now you're not, maybe not just dealing with contaminated groundwater, you could be dealing with contaminated soil. Right. And dealing with that in construction might mean, might change 
where you need to send that excavated soil. Um, wow, I thought things were complex enough. When <laughs> we added we added soil to the water. Yeah, absolutely. And and the other big issue that comes up in the city a lot too, right? Is it's a it's a densely developed area where you have a lot of buildings that are close to your development site. So going through those dewatering situations that we described before, uh, big hole pumping out a lot of water uh, and that radius of influence, what's the potential in for any of the neighboring buildings to then settle as you're removing uh, groundwater from, from the soil, which is you know, contributing to some of that soil stability? So taking that out, making the soil a little bit less stable, does that create a situation where settlement could happen? An example we saw of that in Toronto within the last two years was on the, the Crosslinks job in the Mount Pleasant, Eglinton area where a crane unexpectedly did sink into a sinkhole and fell down on the street and thank God nobody was hurt on it. Um, but it would have took nothing for that crane to have fallen down in a different direction and potentially taken down half a condo tower on its way. The nightmare scenario is just thinking about that. Our, uh, let's, let's, let's just not ponder that anymore. I'm glad <laughs> nobody got hurt. But that is a really good example of how seriously we need to be taking these hydrogeological matters. Yeah, th thanks for that illustration. So. You know, so so we have covered a lot of a lot of things. Why why a lot of risks associated with this? A lot of the complexities. This is extremely complex. I'm really glad you shared some of the information you did. What what brings you back? Why this is very complicated. The there's there's money there's money at risk. There's reputations at risk. There's schedules at risk. Years there's regulations aplenty. So why does Mike Francis get up in the morning, brush his teeth? And then say it's time for some hydrogeology. Time to put on my hydrogeology hat. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I love getting up every morning and putting my hydrogeology hat on. And right now, in in the uh, the space that I'm working in, you know, a big reason for that is you're helping to shape the Toronto skyline, right? Like you're doing investigations and and helping these condo developers that it could be building renowned or groundbreaking buildings uh, pushing the envelope of architectural design in the city and you get to be part of that development so it's a pretty cool piece to be involved in also for me I, I really enjoy the the culmination of all of my past experiences that Janet touched on in my intro you know from my time in the gold mines um, to my time with Ellis Dawn and my time growing and becoming a hydrogeologist, I get to pull all that t together now in the in the city and, and working with the developers. So I, I really like that aspect of it. And and lastly, it's you know raising the awareness about groundwater. As I said before, groundwater is essential to life. I myself am a groundwater user. I live on a, on a well and supply my family with uh, groundwater as drinking water. So I think it's a really important resource to understand and protect. Once we start thinking about pulling all that water out of the ground and 
potentially contaminating it, you know, it makes it really hard to bring it back to a usable form. We want to keep it usable for, for everyone. Clean, tasty, ice cold drinking water. I'm all about it. Can't get enough of it, you know? <laughs> three, three to four liters a day. Yeah, 100%. I grew up on well water, some of the best water I've ever had. Yeah, they say in the city of Coeur d'Alene says some of the best water, best groundwater going. Yeah, well, it's I can attest to it. It is really, really good. <laughs> Not as good as mountain water, I would say. Before we wrap this up, Mike, do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners? Janet, to leave uh, the listeners with some food for thought about hydrogeology, my one comment would be to uh, stress the importance of uh, you know a really good comprehensive. Uh, design to a hydrogeology investigation and to a you know groundwater dewatering system thoroughly understanding the quality and quantity of groundwater that you are looking to take out of the ground will help feed into our environmental regulation framework that exists and then you can get someone like Gems on board to help you navigate the approval process. As, as we say in engineering, the pinch of prevention is worth an ounce of cure. Couldn't have said it better myself. That about wraps up for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Next episode promises to be a good one as well. We'll have Tim Rupert on as our guest. He is a structural engineer with DG Biddle and Associates. To stay up to date on this podcast when it comes out and all subsequent podcasts, please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like more information about PR Engineering, go to PRIEngineering.com and learn more about us there. And remember, it's soil, not dirt.